0: Hi, it's Dan, and this is SOS Weekly Reviews, issue
1: number three. Hi, it's Mike, and welcome to issue number three of the audio version of the weekly show, and I'm joined alongside by...
2: Dan. And Vincent. What's up?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And without further ado, let's just jump right into it and hit off with our retro book this week. Is we have Adventure Comics number 452 starring Aquaman right on the cover, it's Aquaman and Aqualad to the death. This issue is written by David Michelini and Art on this is by Jim Aparo. And we left off with the tease of ooh, this this is a big issue. Um, spoiler alert for an issue that's like 30 or 40 years old. Um, this is the death of Aqua Baby. We open with the issue of Aquaman tussling with this like undersea cult and he's then gets to he's then like unsurped by black manta and basically he's captured him and aqualad and they have to he command and he's also captured his son because topo the octopus stole aqua baby and black manta somehow ended up with him um but black manta has encased aqua baby and this oxygen tank that's going to be empty of water in five minutes and if once it gets empty because aqua baby doesn't know how to use uh breathe out of water he only has about five minutes of life outside the bubble and he commands aqualad and aquaman to fight to the death aquaman without like really breaking a sweat or like really thinking about it goes all right guess i gotta kill aqualad (laughs) and uh they immediately just get into a fight um topo then comes back and like breaks down the walls and gives aquaman a moment to like throw his spear to try to free aqua baby but at the end of all this it's too late they just dis- they discover aqua baby is dead and i'm not gonna fully sum up panel by panel like we n- sometimes do on this because it is a pretty well-known issue but i will say it's a very very good issue um uh, david Michelinie's writing here is top notch and jim aparo's pencils here are top notch all open the floor to you guys, but definitely one of the higher and better books we've read for the retro spotlight.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, not really having a lot of exposure to Aquaman, this was just a really great issue. Like Mike said, I mean, really familiar with David Michelini's writing. So this is really great to read some of his stuff, especially from DC. And yeah, I mean, some of the twists and turns of this issue just feels really like, like very comic booky. Like this is like, i don't know that's a really weird way of saying it but like this is what i enjoy about comics is you know characters being put into these situations that are very you know that determine a lot about their characters and the characters around them going forward and you know even after the baby has passed like you know Topo's pretty much just like you know i don't want anything to do with you anymore like you basically were trying to kill me
1: well it's not but, topo it's aqualad topo the yeah. octopus
0: Oh, my bad. I got that mixed up. Anyway, yeah, but Aqualad just totally, you know, leaves Aquaman now. So it's kind of interesting to see, you know, how it goes forward. But yeah. I don't know. Did you have any, do you have any like weird thoughts on the fact that it's
2: David Because obviously you know him, uh, I guess, a few, not super long after this, um, writing Iron Man for the first time. hmm. I mean, I don't know. I, just, I, you know. I mean, I guess you said, the, you know, you thought the writing was good.
1: Yeah. You have anything to add on it or no?
2: Yeah. I, thought, I mean, not a ton. I mean, like, we covered the plot and everything like that. Um, there's huge stuff here. Aqua Baby is dead, but also, I mean, you have multiple iconic, like, panels and Aquaman moments in here. There's obviously the death of Aqua Baby, and there's, I think, the, the scene, the panel where... Black Manta is holding him in the globe of air. It's a very iconic Aquaman panel. And then the panel where Arthur realizes that he's, uh, th- that he's dead. But also, there's a panel where he says, Hey, why do you think they call me Black Manta? And he takes off his mask. And so this is also the issue where Black Manta reveals that he's black.
1: Oh, I didn't know that.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, this is like from... Past, like, his origin issue, which is, like, late, late 50s or something, or, like, early 60s, this is probably, like, the most important Aquaman issue. Well, past his origin and then his wedding, which, and then I think Aquababy's born, like, in the same issues, or no, it's not the same issue as the wedding, but past past the origin issue, past the wedding, past Aquababy's birth, this is probably, like, the most important issue of Aquaman until, like, I don't know, like Peter David cuts his hand off, or
0: has it bit off, I, I should say. Um, like this is this is crucial, crucial Aquaman stuff. That'd be a little weird if the birth, if the birth was the same same issue as the marriage. No, it's not. But no, it's not. he's, it's not, it's not
2: like they reference like he's, it's not like they, you know, there's not a sex scene or anything like that. But Baby is announced. And then born in in the same exact issue. Like, there's no pregnancy over more than one issue. Um, Which I I found strange. But I guess it makes sense for, you know, 1960s comic books. I don't know. I'm kind of, like, low-key a huge Aquaman fan. And DC is putting out a deluxe hardcover of this. And despite the fact—and which is great because the trade paperback has been hard to find for several years— and despite the fact that I have two copies of that trade paperback, back, I think I'm probably <laughs> going to upgrade to the
1: hardcover. The, the best part about this is the sec- The reason why he has two of these is the very first time ever we did our yearly or annual – it means the same thing um, – <laughs> Harrisburg trip, he found this in a Books a Million, and then he tried to get everyone to buy it. And then no one wanted to buy it because it was like 14 bucks. And he's like, well, it's like $80 online. And then what happened is no one bought it, but he bought it. And then he, I was waiting for him to sell it and get that return on profit, and he never did. And now he might be missing the opportunity.
2: Actually, there's there's there are several books that I need to get up on eBay, or that's The Sitch. It's a cool issue. And I would say... Given the time period and everything, one of one of our highlight retro books.
1: Well, it's it it is uh, th- this is Bronze Age, correct? Yeah. All right. It it reads very much like a modern book. Like it, a, it, I think it's ahead of its time for the way it's the way it's written.
0: Yeah, I mean, sort of. Um, it,
1: at least the way it read to me.
0: Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that too. It Didn't feel very seventies. Okay, but now into new books.
1: Yeah, and the books that came out this week, we're going to start with Action Comics, number 1015, Um, Brian Michael Bendis, and is it Seisman or Simon Kodransky? That's the artist on this. The whole issue here is just Naomi, Crashlands, in Metropolis, and Superman kind of takes her under her wing and teaches her how to use her powers. Um, He takes her to the Hall of Justice, introduces her to the Wonder Twins, Also brings in Batman to investigate where she's from along with Dr. Ray Palmer uh, to figure out where from the multiverse she's from. But then Superman gets whisked away to deal with Leviathan bullshit. And that's the issue. Um, Also, we get more stuff with Rose and Thorn and the Red Cloud. And um, cool. It's been like 15 issues of this. And um, the story ain't moving anywhere. And uh, this this book to me is now plopped into dropping territory, because it's it, it I don't feel like it's going anywhere, which is the issue. And then it just abruptly ends during this fight between Superman and the Red Cloud. It just it just felt like a mismatch of things that Bendis wanted to do in this issue. I was like, oh, I want to have Naomi meet Superman, but also I gotta. Also, space out the Rose and Thorn and Red Cloud stuff I've been doing. Oh, wait, the issue's over. Um, I thought really kind of mismanaged plot pacing here. And um, overall, this the story is wearing thin. And having the fact that Leviathan is running through this, Lois Lane, kind of Jimmy Olsen, and then vet Leviathan, I'm kind of at that point where I just kind of want to wash my hands of all of it and go, all right, who is it so I can be done with it? Because... Having four books kind of all at the same time dealing with this and not one of them getting any closer to telling me what the hell is going on in the story um, is growing tiresome very quickly. That's that's Action Comics ten fifteen.
0: I remember like a few issues. I think it was like by like a few months ago. I read one of the Action Comics. I just was not interested. I think it was probably around the beginning of this storyline. But yeah, I wasn't really a fan of then. So
1: it it. it. It's like this and Superman both need to start moving and getting paid. He's done 15 issues on Rogel Czar and Superman, which is a book we're not covering on the show just because none of us are actively reading it. I kind of ancillarily know what's going on, but I have been reading this kind of from the beginning and just nothing's happening. Like you have to eventually go somewhere. And when you have four books that are dealing with this big overarching story arc, we need the plot to move a little bit here. It's we're, we're closing in on what year two of Bendis on Superman books. And he's been doing one overarching story arc in each book. I would have thought we would have had more stories by this point, but that I'm done talking about action comics. I'd much rather talk about amazing Spider-Man.
0: All right. So segueing into amazing Spider-Man volume five, number 30, we pick up with,
1: uh, is
0: his name? This guy that's like visiting mysterious. Is his name Kindred?
1: Yeah, I'm going with Kindred at or this point.
0: What's, his, what's this guy's name then?
1: Kindred. Kindred. We're going with Kindred.
0: Okay. Yeah, because I think that's what he says here in, in the book. So he's talking to Mysterio. It assumes, I'm pretty sure he kills him.
1: Yeah, that's a flashback.
0: Um, so he then goes to Ravencroft. Oh, it's a flashback. That's right. I forgot. It's been it's been a while since I've read this book. Anyway, so we get this Kindred guy going to visit somebody in Ravencroft, and it is none other than Norm, Norman Osborn. Um, we then pan to Spider-Man talking about the symbiote and how it first came to Earth, flashing back to, obviously, Secret Wars, where he was first infected with the symbiote. Not infected, but I guess attached to the symbiote. Kind of gets a recap of the whole you know, symbiote story, very clip note version you know, Venom carnage and then everyone else get infected at some point or another you know how marvel works and pretty much explaining you know what's going on in absolute carnage this is an absolute carnage crossover so we pretty much are explained about that i won't go into too much detail about that on this issue obviously but pretty much what's happening in the main Spider-Man issue is that peter is protecting um normie osborne his godson and dylan brock who is i guess eddie brock's son Yeah. so we kind of get a little side quest with the two of them you know uh, Peter keeping them safe and then the rest of the issue is pretty much Peter facing off against Carnage who I guess technically is Cletus Kasady but it's actually Norman Osborn I'm not really sure they referenced a little bit about the Red Goblin which I thought was a little weird I'm not sure if that was mentioned in Absolute Carnage but throughout this fight we do get flashbacks to Pete with his friends. Um, And this whole, this, the reason why I like this issue is that these flashbacks kind of remind me of like the old, like, you know, late sixties, early seventies of Spider-Man with all these characters all together. You know, Gwen, MJ, Flash, Harry Osborn. During this whole fight, we kind of get flashbacks between those two. And then we pan back to Kindred talking to Norm, Norman at Ravencrop and basically explain to him like why he's probably one of the best villains for Spider-Man because you know, he um he basically like I guess presents to Peter like no hope that like it's I'm not gonna I, it's, it's a weird way he explains it but like it makes sense like with how Norman Osborn is and then we finally get a, a last splash page where Norman comes out of the Carnage um, suit so I'm assuming that's like a big reveal and it's gonna be continued in I guess Absolute Carnage I'm not sure if it's gonna get referenced in there but. To be honest, I know this is a crossover, and I know it's by cutting into the storyline that we have already going with Amazing Spider-Man, but this is actually not that bad, to me at least, in terms of a crossover issue. I don't think it really, like, it's it's a good crossover issue to read. It doesn't make me feel like I'm, like, taken out of the book. I mean, I am taken out of the book, but it's not too bad as to, like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm reading this. Um, I'm curious to see what you guys think, but that's kind of my take on it.
1: No, I'd agree. I, I think it's very much a filler issue, but at the same time a building issue because we're getting back to Kindred, who we haven't seen since that kind of mini Mysterio arc that we saw. But I I thought having the Kindred stuff being worked in with the Carnage stuff I thought was a good marriage uh, to keep things moving. And uh, Ryan Otley's back on art here. It's the return of Ryan Otley on interiors, not just to cover of the book. And it was kind of an And, I mean, I'm happy he's back because it was – this issue was kind of just, all right, Otley, go crazy drawing um, Spider-Man carnage fight. And it's really, really good. Um, And Mm -hmm. he's doing the next issue. This and the next issue are both going to be absolute carnage tie-ins. And then after that, we're into the 2099 event. So the book's kind of on this stranglehold of event fatigue that might happen. But if we get issues like this where Spencer's continuing to build his story with Kindred as his big new villain – but also seamlessly be able to work it into the big Spider-Man-centric event that's happening with Absolute Carnage and Venom. I have no complaints. I thought it was a pretty good issue. There's a lot of tie-in issues that I've seen in the past that could have easily just wrote this off or could have gotten a guest writer, but no, Spencer keeps the foundation of his run completely building throughout here, and I thought a very, very good, solid building issue.
2: It was really awesome to see Otley draw Venom. For like one panel, there's a just kind of a pinup shot for like half a page, which looks really nice. Um, I don't, I'm not 100% certain on the continuity of this because Kindred is interacting with Norman in a cell and in a, a straitjacket. And then Norman has the carnage symbiote of some sort. But then it's like, how does that line up with absolute carnage? It lines where- up because
1: all that stuff was a flashback.
2: Of Kindred interacting with Carnage.
1: Well, that, I don't know. But when he was interacting with Norman, that was still a flashback. Because he he killed Mysterio and then was, like, walking around Ravencroft.
2: Okay. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't clear to me. Yeah, it was nice to see the flashbacks. I feel like the the big deal here and what, you know, some of the people noted is that Kindred claims, which doesn't mean it's necessarily true, that Peter yells out Gwen's name in his sleep. Which I feel like is not really a necessary thing. I don't really like that. It's not a huge deal, but I don't like that.
1: Um, well, the the big thing is who is Kindred.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, that's another mystery. And
1: he knows um, an awful lot about Peter Parker, which is why I'm still I'm still banking on the theory that it's the husk dead body of Peter Parker that died when when Norman when Ox switched bodies with him.
0: That would be weird.
1: Well, he's got the four yeah. tendrils in the back, and he knows an awful lot about Peter Parker it it would make sense that's all i'm saying
2: yeah or you can tie it somehow to one more day yeah i I
1: saw that theory floating around too it's i i like him though he's definitely interesting he's got the bug motif going on i think he works
2: very interested and again similar to the last issue we had that ring tease, and you know kindred has been a tease since the literally the beginning of the run before the run the pre day story but again it's like you know when is this going to conclude i it's definitely not concluding in these absolute carnage times no nope. and it's not going to be tied to
1: 2099 well we so, don't know that I mean he could show up well, you never know
2: yeah he could show up but they're not going to they're not going to finish this kindred thing which has been running the entire run at oh, the same time as doing the 2099 thing so you know, it's it's a slow build, and we're not going to see the conclusion of this until um, at the very minimum, seven issues from now. And then we have the the, the marriage ring possibilities floating around as well. Very exciting. Uh, even early on to this, when we started doing this show and, and talking about this series, I've been very impressed with how um, Spencer handles his subplotting.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a slow burn, and he does things very well, building and getting to it when he gets to it. It it's and I have no problem with that, um, because it looks like he's locked in for a pretty long run.
2: Yeah, well, there's the thing, and it's it's worth the comparison. Other you know other writers do slow burn, decompress stuff, and it doesn't work quite as well. I mean, you basically said earlier that Bendis has been doing the same thing, but you, you're not liking how he's executed.
1: Well, I'm not liking Bendis' execution because it's the same story. We haven't gotten any other mini-stories in between. It's always still been who is Leviathan from the very beginning. With this, like, we can, we've had Hunted, we've had the stuff with MJ, we've had the Mysterio stuff, we've had the stuff with, um, the, the Sinister Syndicate, the Syndicate, and then we had all this stuff with Boomerang. like, but at the same time, all the all, all, all lizard as well. The, all of this has been ha- happening, and then su- and then also with the Kindred stuff. With Bendis' stuff on Superman, it's been Rogelzar in Superman, and then it's been Leviathan in action through three other books. Angel number five, the last issue of these Hellmon- the Hellmouth event prelude between the Buffy and Angel books. So we're we'll at Buffy and Angel, and then starting next month, we're going to have the Hellmouth mini series that all these books are gonna cross over into each other. We open with Gun, um, who we saw in the last issue um being hinted at as Angel is the person he has to go track down gun as part of his team. Um Gunn is hunting vampires in the inner cities of Los Angeles. Um and he's like Facebook liveing his like vampire huntings. Um and he's going after um the guy he's going after and it cuts to a flashback um, when he was a kid on um, his first encounter with a vampire um, he was running away from the cops and there's a guy that like stopped and said like hey to get in to try to help him get a- get away and it was revealed they take him to a back alley and it's revealed to be a vampire there, and then it kills his friend but he was able to escape so that's why he um he's on this crusade against vampires and he's trying to find the one that killed his friend angel tracks down his location and ends up doing a mini team up with him and then they he just takes him out for a burger um and basically lays everything on the table and he's like this might sound weird there's a demon who's steering me in the right direction by the way i'm also a vampire but i've a, i've got a soul and i'm good and uh if you want to help me fight evil um here's my card um uh, meet me at my apartment." and but first i gotta go with the sunnydale and do this thing but i look forward to having you there and then bait and then angel then heads to sunnydale and we see him at the halloween party that we saw him at back in buffy number five so and then also gun does end up going to angel's apartment and he meets fred but yep next month hellmouth number one as this is all going to converge um really good issue by brian edward hilt he gets the characters really really well here and Gleb melanikov's art uh continues to be very very good um I think both of uh, the Angel and the Buffy books have been very, very strong from Boom and their Buffy line.
2: All right, good shit. Um, I kind of the phrase "final issue of the Prelude" kind of annoys me.
1: Well, fi- I think it was Buffy number five and or Buffy six and Angel five that it was only one issue each that was Prelude. Yeah.
2: So Avengers number twenty-four. This is the challenge of the Ghost Riders arc. So there's, there's two plots going on here. There's the plot with the Avengers, the main Avengers, and then in Hell with the two Ghost Riders. So I'm going to split them up, just make it easier to, to digest. So the Hell part, all the other Riders in Hell, Robbie, I, like, ran across them, and I don't really know what their status quo is. Like, if Johnny is like, hey, you guys hang out here, or, like, force them to be there, or if they're there by default, the if they would be somewhere else otherwise because they don't really seem to be down with the whole living in hell thing. Also, they just shit talk on Johnny. They're hyping up Robbie, and there may be some, like, underlying thing here. Johnny, like, I was thinking for a while, maybe Johnny's pulling the strings and doing this on purpose to motivate Robbie because he has, um, ulterior motives. But they're basically saying, yeah, Johnny's a dick. He's just as corrupt as all the other hell lords. There's no such thing as a noble master of hell. And then... To prove that point, Johnny gets Robbie's uncle Eli to possess an evil celestial, which I guess is from I believe the first arc of this series, or the second, or an early arc. And there's no footnote for it, which kind of annoyed me. Um, I guess the argument could be it's the same series, so if you're reading 24, it's really easy; just read the previous ones. It's that's just expected, but I would put a footnote there. The celestial, I. I guess it smashes his car or something, even though we've seen his car, like, regenerate from nothing a billion times. And then also his parents are in hell, possibly dead or none of the above. Could all be bullshit. Who knows? There's a few, like, I don't know, there's a few interesting lines from Johnny and, and Robbie's meeting all the ghost Riders and stuff like that. And I, and this is the part of the story that I care about more. But then in the Avengers side, we have Thor and She-Hulk, Fighting Cosmic Ghost Rider, and Cosmic Ghost Rider like refers to Frank Castle's skull in the third person, and that made me question. So, Mike, I know you read the first issue of Cosmic Ghost Rider, the miniseries. Did you read any further than that?
1: I think I read the first two.
2: Okay, and I don't think you had read any of the Donnie Kate Thanos stuff.
1: No, I actually... haven't.
2: Okay, so. I haven't actually read that much Cosmic Ghost Rider. I just know him as like, he's popular now or whatever. And I've read a, a few appearances. Does he ever on
1: Ghost Rider? He was Frank. He, just, I, he was Frank Castle on yeah, his either. yeah. And then he got, um, pretty much since I've known him, like since he's been turned into ghost. He he was turned into Ghost Rider after Thanos took over the world. His, yeah, but I'm
2: saying like I'm saying like similar to Johnny, Robbie, Danny, literally every other one. Does he ever like? Unrider and become essentially Frank Castle or
1: whatever. May I think yeah, a little bit. Uh, I think there are a couple times where, yeah, he's not like in his Ghost Rider form. Okay. I'm sorry. I, didn't, I I forgot. I didn't know what you're meaning by Unrider. Like yeah. I thought. Like if there was times before he was had the powers.
2: Yeah, because that's the thing is, depending on the Ghost Rider and depending on the writer and how much they care, it's 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 just like Captain Marvel slash Shazam, where sometimes you have. Different personality characterizations, and sometimes they're the same. Uh, also similar to Hulk, and characters like that. But in this fight, I don't really, I, I really hate this version of She-Hulk. I don't totally like the way Eren writes Thor sometimes, as we discussed, but there's some kind of fun moments here where, like, Mjolnir's stuck in the skull, but also that affects Cosmic Ghost Rider, his manner of speech, and because a in the ass to read. And then he smacks She-Hulk with his own skull, which is kind of a funny moment. And then I guess Black Panther can tap into the celestial Avengers Mountain and give himself and Captain America cosmic punching powers, which is kind of silly fun. And then every, everyone's converging on Cosmic Ghost Rider. All the other Avengers finally show up. And something like Boy Thing comes out of nowhere, the like mini-man thing. And I don't know what happens here because there's all this fire. So I guess, I don't know if Boy Thing is, you know, everything burns and the man things touch. So Cosmic Ghost Rider is burning, but obviously he's a Ghost Rider, so that doesn't necessarily do anything. And then is Boy Thing getting hurt? I I couldn't really tell what the point of this uh, panel was ultimately, but that motivates Blade to pull out his OP like spirit gun, which does some damage to Cosmic Ghost Rider which gets him to chill out, and it's all a big misunderstanding fight. And then for, like, four panels, he just, like, info-dumps the shit out of himself. And I'm like, that was a little clunky. And there's a footnote here to Guardians, but not earlier to the previous Avengers story. And then I guess Hellstorm leaves the series at this point. He's just like, yeah, I'm not taking you guys to hell. And we don't see him leave, but I assume he just dips here. And the end, Cosmic Ghost Rider is going to take the rest of the Avengers to hell to try and help Robbie out. And the, like, gag thing is Cosmic Ghost Rider, from his perspective, thinks that he's joined the Avengers. It was a fine issue. Not as interesting as the other ones. I'm more interested in Ghost Rider stuff. I don't care as much about Cosmic Ghost Rider. It's whatever. And also... I'm kind of doubting that Gary shows up in this arc at all at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I'm off of this book. I I don't enjoy any of the Avengers bits in it. It's I not even like the Avengers book. Yeah. I, I only like the Ghost Rider stuff. And it still feels like there's such an inconsistent way that they're writing Johnny Blaze right now. They're writing Johnny Blaze as a vindictive evil asshole in Avengers, but he's like kind of a caring, wants to transform the way Hell's ruled and the other Ghost Rider stuff we've seen, where he doesn't know how to control his powers and he's trying to learn. So, very two clear different takes on this new status quo right now, which is a problem. So, I'm off this. Uh, And then the stuff with the Avengers, I don't care what's going on, (laughs) because... It's a Ghost Rider-centric arc, and I'm more interested with that. And the Avengers are just kind of there. Which is bad when yeah. it's the Avengers book.
2: I'm not really certain how many more parts of this story are left. But I'm at least going to stick with it, just in the off chance that Danny Catch shows up. So that's Avengers. And now we have more Avengers.
1: Well, yeah, the good yeah. Avengers book we read this week.
0: Yep. So... This book is Avengers Loki Unleashed, another um, Marvel 80 years one-shot written by Roger Stern, drawn by Ron Lim. Yeah, so pretty much the story we pick up with Loki and Asgard just chilling, looking at this globe. And then this girl's talking to him, being like, you know, why don't you pay attention to me? And then he just makes her disappear. And then this other girl shows up, and she's like, I want to help you. I want to be your, you know... It's
1: Loki's wife.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So... Um, she's chilling there and then he's like, you know, I need to go to this, um, planet to get this energy that will help Asgard. And then we pretty much pan to the events that happened right after the Under Siege storyline, which as all of us know, is one of the few story arcs that Roger Stern under his run back in the 1980s with Avengers, specifically around 273 to 277. So we pick up with you know Tony and Cap walking through Avengers Mansion, looking at all the damage from the Masters of Evil. Um, and what I have to say here, just a side note, the um, the suit that Tony is wearing is the exact he wears in I think I forget what issue it is, like two eighty something, where he goes to see Jarvis in the hospital because Jarvis is in a was in like like really beat up by the Masters of Evil. Oh um, wow,
1: that's pretty so cool. That,
0: you know what I'm saying? That's a pretty cool detail. That's, Obviously, the, all the other costumes, you're going to get right because you just got to look at those issues to see, like, okay, Wasp is wearing her yellow and black, you know, outfit, whatever.
1: And Thor's got the, to, the beard to hide his scars from the stuff that happened in Walt Simonson's run. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so that – like, this well,
1: is all
2: like, – There's, like, five footnotes in this issue.
1: Yeah, and it's yeah, awesome. Right. Like, I mean, I, I – I hate to interrupt, but like, oh my God, isn't it great to see the Avengers as friends working together?
0: <laughs> I know, like this is this has to be probably one of my favorite eras of Avenger stuff. Um, I really did like Roger Stern's run. I haven't read the whole run, but what I did read, I really enjoyed. So, um, this is a good team. You know, as we pan to Monica Rambeau going to see Jarvis's um, mother, Abigail, I believe her name is. And uh, they're kind of just talking back and forth about Jarvis and his role in the Avengers. And then we pan to Tony putting on his Silver Centurion suit, which, as we know at this time, he's wearing. Um, I believe this is, like, right at the beginning of the Armor Wars, like, right around that era. So he's still wearing that armor, obviously. Um, But he's serving as a West Coast Avenger, so he came up to see Jarvis and all that stuff. And they're kind of talking about the status of the Avengers Mansion when suddenly – um, Loki's wife comes through and is saying, like, you need to come help him. He's stuck in this planet. And they're like, yeah, this is obviously a trap. Loki is an asshole and he is definitely going to try his lyrics in for a final battle until Doctor Strange shows up and it's like, yo, guys, he's actually telling the truth. You need to come with us to this planet. And they all go through this portal and we get some really great moments of like, you know, different people teaming up. We get like Cap and Iron Man teaming up and, um, you know, just some really good fighting moments. Um, when When we get to this planet, Loki is fighting this guy. I think his name's like Ian or something. And he's has this power that Loki was trying to get for Asgard. So as they're fighting, um, you know, we get some, we get a cool splash page with Thor, another cool splash page with Monica Rambeau, you know, coming in between Ian and Loki. So really cool to see her having some, you know, screen time, I guess, in this issue. And, you know, the Avengers are pretty much about to, like, stop the, the fight when this EN guy pretty much shuts Loki up and is like, I'm going to destroy all of you guys. And then, sure enough, the Living Tribunal shows up and is like, yo, we, we got to stop. What's going on here? And um, that's pretty much what happens. I think, you know, at the end, Loki kind of comes back to Asgard and is sitting down. He's like, I don't know what's worse that, you know, I was the one who created the Avengers or like I'm the one who's responsible for the creation of the Avengers or the fact that the Avengers are the reason why I'm still alive because pretty much if it wasn't for them showing up and stopping Ian and, you know, getting a living tribunal involved, um, he would have been dead. So, um, this is probably one of the best one shots I've read of all these here. And, uh, yeah, I'm really, I I really enjoy this. I mean, Roger Stern, it doesn't seem like he skipped the beat at all after returning here. And Ron Lim's art is great. It just—it looks weird seeing his art, you know, with like modern colors. But it's just amazing. I really, really dug this. Um, and I'm curious to see what you guys thought.
2: Oh. I don't know where you got Ian or whatever from. Um, I kind of sped through parts of this issue just based on timing. But are you talking about C Snag or whatever? It might be. I don't know. Yeah, yeah he <laughs> probably by way off. <laughs> it's from uh, an arc in Marvel here before Doctor Strange got his second volume. Uh, it's the Steve Englehart run, which is like uh, it's in the A Separate Reality Epic Collection. Oh. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed this issue. All the footnotes, like like Stern, really like jammed this in into continuity and matched it up completely. And honestly, I'd expect that Stern did all that heavy lifting, and not whoever got tasked with editing this. Um, not to totally shit shit on them, but I just assume it was Stern, and I was kind of surprised by the Ron Lim art. Um, it's not even just the coloring; it, it's a lot like more cartoony um, than I would expect from him, and almost like like Ron. It's, it seems strange to say because like you know, circa Infinity War and stuff like that. Ron Lim was like, you know. Kind of considered a fairly 90s style dude and a very popular artist, but this like iteration around Limb, you could put on like an all ages book.
1: Yeah, his style on this is very kind of blocky. It almost reminds me a little of Ryan Otley. I think the colors were a little bit muted. I'd like to see a little bit more striking colors, um, a little bit more primaries thrown in there. Uh, to really make it pop, but this was my pick of the week uh, as far as things I enjoyed. This was great. Classic feel to the Avengers, obviously with Roger Sturm at the helm. Um, Classic team. They were working together. No one hated each other. Um, (laughs) This was exactly what I wanted out out of Avengers book. Plus, classic villains like Loki. Doctor Strange showed up, which gets bonus points in my book for enjoyment. Um, Loved this. Top to bottom, loved this.
2: Pretty glowing reviews.
1: I'd say, like, this and uh, The Incredible Hulk Last Call um, by Peter David are probably two of my favorites um, with these 80th anniversary specials. Yeah, I've been picking up the ones that interest me and
2: very interested to see, you know, how they split this up. I think they're they're doing some of it thematically for collections, like putting some X-Men-related stuff together. Um, I think almost all these I've enjoyed. I don't remember which ones we've skipped or not enjoyed, but...
1: Uh, there were some Spider-Man ones that were rough.
2: Well, yeah, yeah, the um, the one that was, like, the true story of the black suit was kind of weak. Yeah. But I, I, you guys weren't as strong in it, but I liked the uh, the one with the Eric Larson thing.
1: Yeah, with the, with the three pages of Eric Larson art. Yeah. Active Comics number 1012, Peter Tomasi, and Doug Makey's back on art as we're finally getting into this Mr. Freeze arc that's been teased over the last, like, four issues called this freeze frame and re- we open up with a big old close-up on batman's face um as snow is falling we also get the footnote this issue happens before batman number 77 because alfred's still around but uh you're not convincing me he's dead <laughs> you're just well, not gonna do it it's well it's not just alfred it's you know the
2: the city of bane yeah i know
1: i know yeah. i know but still i just i just want to say it um, Mr. Freeze is out in the Gotham Pine Barrens uh, sending these goons that he has to just like kidnap these women that have similar looks and body features to his wife Nora because he needs them for what he's about to do to Nora to try to make her well again. He, what the, the the gift that he got from Lex Luthor is that he doesn't need his power suit to survive outside, so he's just walking around like normal Mr. Freeze um, without the power suit. Um, while Batman is sitting in the garage of the bat, of the bat cave, uh, tuning up the Batwing, as he's listening to the, to the intercom. Um, Alfred's helping, but Bruce is lifting weights. Um, so he gets like the call to go in because one of the thugs messed up and one of the women were like injured and hit on the head. And because they thought freeze one that want, wanted them all like pristine and not injured, they kind of just booked it, but she woke up and called a, called him to the police. Um, which springs Batman in action to investigate what the hell's going on, um, which brings him to the GCPD and Harvey Bullock's back guys. This is great. Um, it's Batman and Bullock teaming up because Gordon's not present due to the events that happened in uh, Batman who laughs when he was kidnapped. But this is basically just like bands doing detective stuff, uh, figuring out what's going on as freeze is putting his plan into motion. And at the house, Freeze goes, no, you got to get that woman back and make sure you get there before she wakes up. And the goons go back to the house and Batman's there waiting and we're out. So the next issue will pick up. Doug Mankey being back is a welcome surprise. I thought he was done, um, but having him back is great. Uh, he he drew the first part of this, this run with Tomasi and it looks tremendous. And the story is still really good. This amped up fast after I know we weren't super hot. On the Mister Freeze backups, um, but just truly great uh, pe- uh, pages of both Batman and Mister Freeze in the snow. Uh, I like this a lot. I thought it was fun. I'm curious to see where it goes.
2: Yeah, the I was a little put off at first by the first like two or three pages. I think where the first page is like this kind of like totally unnecessary like bullshit like monologue about snowflakes and yeah. stuff and i'm like I, yeah um yeah just like i don't i don't like that kind of writing typically in comic books unless you're writing like sandman but and then there's also like a weird comment about the boats and stuff and i think this is tomasi trying to reference you know uh the whole bat cat boat in the street thing
1: yeah a little That's
2: bit it's just not very – it wasn't very clear. To, it seems obvious that that's what he's doing, but it's also not obvious, if that makes remote sense. Right. And so it took me a second, and, you know, it's not like, like they could have done an inset panel of Selina or something like that. But I'm, they said the word Selina, I'm pretty sure.
1: No, no, Batman um, calls out Selina when yeah. he's looking at the snow. So
2: the idea is, I guess, you know, paralleling Selina and, and Nora in some way as it transitions over to the freeze part, which is interesting. But I feel like he didn't really – you didn't really hit that on the head quite as much.
1: I, I can and, agree with and, that. Though I will say this issue gets bonus points for me for having a norm brake vocal landmark reference yeah. in Gotham City.
2: And I, I thought the weightlifting part was really interesting to me because if you follow Mankey on Twitter, he's a weightlifting dude. And in fact, like he's like straight up like competed in like semi-professional weightlifting competitions and does like the deadlift type of stuff and everything like that. And so I feel like Tommaso was like, hey, what do you want to draw Bruce doing in the Batcave? Or like, do you want to draw him weightlifting? And Monkey was like, was like, yeah, fuck yeah. I'm gonna draw Bruce Wayne with the best form ever. And I like I I'm pretty sure that Mankey was like overjoyed drawing those pages. And I think that's really cool.
1: Well, I will say though, like the, the banter between Bruce and Alfred, Tomasi writes, is always very solid. Yeah. And I think
2: Now that we've finally gotten into the arc after the totally unnecessary epilogue pages in, like, the past entire arc, I think Tomasi has a good handle on Freeze now. I don't really totally like... I don't totally like his current designs and stuff like that, and some of that is You're the Villain-related, and that applies to every villain right now. But just in general, I feel like it's hard because the most iconic Freeze design is from the animated show, and it's like, if you translate that to an artist who's a little bit more of a realism style, like Mankey, it it can come off a little cartoony.
1: Well, at the end of the day though, he's got the red, he's got the blue skin and he's got the red goggles and it looks like Mr. Freeze. If you wanted to compare it very briefly to the Mr. Freeze we've seen over on a no man's land show, I will take this version of Mr. Freeze any day of the week over the one in no man's land.
2: Yeah. But I think Tomasi handles now that we've actually gotten to it. He handles freeze really well. Yeah. On the writing side, because he he still has that sympathetic angle of Nora, and you know he's he's trying to fix everything for them. But then also like the scene where he like freezes the guy's head, and then it, it shatters on the ground is really threatening. That's pretty much that's pretty much my thought. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I I think you know for me at least like not reading a lot of like Batman stuff like when I think of like a, I guess. Um, you know, Mr. Freeze type of storyline. This kind of like, I kind of envision something like this and it's kind of, again, I'm really enjoying detective comics.
1: Well, like really said. you need to go, you need to watch the episode of the animated series called heart of ice. And then, then you can just go, all right, every Mr. Freeze story I'm going to read is always going to be worse than this, but like, there's your marker, <laughs> yeah. but like, this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, that is
2: good. I feel like he must have watched Heart of Ice.
1: I feel like it, I don't know when we Heart of Ice is almost, like, critical, like, that's, like, need needed viewing for Batman at this point.
0: I, I think I did when I was, like, really little. I remember, like, renting a VHS tape. It
1: won, like a, it won a primetime Emmy.
0: Oh, did it really? Yeah. Well, there you go. All right, go watch Heart of Ice and read Detective Comics as we move into the next issue. All right, so Captain America, volume 9, number 14. So we open to one of the people from, I think, I forget what they're called. I think they're, like, called, like, the Daughters of, like, like they're, like, the, um, the Captain America's, like, little posse that's, like, being head up by. It's,
1: like, the Daughters the of Freedom or the Daughters of the Flag or something. Yeah, but
0: something it's, like But it's Echo. Yeah, I think, her, yeah, her name's Echo. Yeah, so she's walking in to a bar, and we pretty much just get, like, a whole fight scene with her. Trying to find like this one guy that has information that they'll need. Um, well, actually, no, she ends up beating the shit out of everybody.
1: Yeah, she beats the oh. whole bar up.
0: <laughs> Never mind. Um, so yeah, then we also have white. Is it White Tiger? That's yeah, it's, name,
1: right? it's 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 Steve Rogers, White Tiger, and Echo. Echo, okay.
0: So they end up finding this base that's actually part of the uh, Watchdogs, and I believe that's like deep in like Captain America lore, but. I still haven't read a lot of like Captain America stuff yet, so um, I haven't I'm not really familiar with them. So they end up kind of going to this base. I forget who they're trying to track down. Are they trying to track down Zemo.
1: Yeah, they're trying to track down the people that have taken the. It's not oh, Zemo. No. It's take out that have taken out Strucker and then Thunderbolt Ross. Like all the people like that, and the Watchdogs have been part of that, along with they were freeing the people at the at the border camps as well.
0: That's right. So. Yeah, I forgot about that. So pretty much, they're trying to make their way through this this like underground base, and they run into AIM again. Um, there's some jokes made about AIM and how stupid they are because they're freaking. I I still it's crazy to me how like in 2019 their outfit has, has still not changed since their conception. It's and I'm
1: and I'm crazy. so happy for that.
0: I know It's just so dorky and stupid, but I I love that they they don't change it. So. Um, yeah, we get some really cool action scenes. We find out that apparently there's like lives like, you know, originally, you know, Cap's team thinks that they're actually killing people down in the basement because um, they're recognizing that li- like, you know, life sources are going away. Turns out they're actually sending these people through a portal, and Cap tries to go through the portal and tries to stop, you know, what's going on with these people getting transferred over. And he can't get there in time, and, like, the portal just closes behind him. Um, we do get a fight between uh, White Tiger and I cannot remember for life to me who it's, this woman was.
1: It's Sin, the Red Skull's daughter. Oh, f- fuck that. Sin, the
0: Red Skull's daughter. Man. Wasn't she in um, Fear Itself?
1: Yeah, she, she's part of she's part of Brubaker's run,
0: though.
1: Okay. Because she, okay, she goes yeah, through the so. portal and she, she's with Crossbones again.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, she does end up flying, going through the portal and she ends up meeting up with Crossbones, like you said. And, uh, yeah, and then we get a little shot here where Nick Fury kind of has to answer for what Cap is, I think, what Cap is doing, like, off, you know, off the board without S.H.I.E.L.D. So there's really, like, you know, this is, again, just some more setup for what's coming, but... I mean, I still like this. I mean, this issue, like Mike and I were discussing offline. Um, this read very fast. This yeah. wasn't a lot of a lot of action, very fluid, which I enjoyed. I thought the art was really dynamic. A lot of good coloring going on and shadows and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm really excited to read this. Um, I'm probably gonna end up getting this all this whole series in trade when it comes out because I haven't read like the first like I think the first story arc I haven't read. So still trying to put pieces together from that, but um yeah i'm really liking this and again just to mention too alex ross cover can't beat that these alex Bro, ross covers
1: are really good like they're really <laughs> good um mm-hmm. it's this and immortal hulk he's really killing it on but i i enjoyed this a lot it's a kind of a big espionage action is the action just keeps ramping and now we know our players that are all involved here and um and we get the hint that that steve rogers is knowing that He's not being fed the entire information because of the dryad and the stuff with, he doesn't know aunt Peggy's back. So it's, and it's hinting the next issue is that he's kind of going off on his own to figure out what's, what's going on with the daughters of Liberty and what they're trying to hide from him. But this is still really, really good. I look forward to just being able to breeze through this all at once with like those sexy Marvel hardcovers that they put out. Um, because honestly they, they they make the, the best, I think Marvel has the corner in the deluxe hardcover game when it comes to just like those are just satisfying to sit and read in your hand. But yeah, the the coats is running, and hopefully hardcover is going to be great to read or an omnibus. I'll take I'll take either. But no, this continues to be really good. They have solicited the first oversized
2: hardcover. All right. Also, I'll give you guys a guess. Who do you think created the Watchdogs? Mm, Mark Runwald. Rob Liefeld. Yeah. Was it really? Yeah. <laughs>
0: wait i was yes, wrong it's, no it's grunwald. grunwald it's grunwald yes it's a main if you had to guess that
1: probably be the first person right yeah i was gonna say it was like it, you really only have three guesses it's grunwald it's or it's uh wade or if it's or it's like engelhart or kirby criminal, criminal volume three number eight um it's brewbreaker and it's phillips and it continues to be fantastic cruel summer rolls right on um this issue focuses all on help me out if i'm wrong her name is Jane, right? Teague's uh, new yeah. girlfriend.
2: mm
1: mm-hmm. um, As it's, they're setting up their big heist and she's kind of concerned with just, all right, after this heist, we're going to go off to the beach somewhere. But she has like this sense of feeling in the back of her head that something's going to go wrong. And she's wondering what it's going to be. And she then, she centers on, oh wait, where the hell is Ricky Lawless been? Um, because we saw the last issue. We, he left with a gun and uh, wanting to kill that, homeless man that he'd seen in juvie so this issue all centers on jane uh trying to track down where ricky is and try to stop him from doing something horrible that would end up basically just torpedoing their whole operation that she's planning with teague and teague's crew she does track down ricky lawless in a bar where she meets an old friend um but she dives out very quickly uh to go get ricky and she sees him on the street with a gun where he's almost going to take the shot at the guy that, at the homeless guy, but they end up following him to whatever kind of drug den he goes into. And they kind of, and Jane just like kind of helps him suffocate and they do kill him. So that was kind of a huge, kind of a big moment. But as they're driving away, we cut back to the bar and, uh, the bartender who Jane was talking to is phoning up one of her friends who said, Hey, this Jane girl's back in town and, uh, doesn't she, uh, someone's paying for information on her. Cause doesn't she know a money to someone? And it's all right. We, we can see how this is all going to come falling down as this continues on. Um, uh, brew Baker, solid Phillips is great. I it's, it's consistently one of the best drawn books and comics.
0: Yep. I mean, I don't know if this was just me. Um, but I had this weird feeling that, like, when Jane and – um, what's his name? Rick? Ricky? Is that his, the, the son's name?
1: Yeah, Ricky Lawless.
0: When they got into the car, I thought something else was going to go down. But I'm like, I don't know if Brubaker would do something weird uh, like that.
1: But, I don't think that I – I never got that hint. I, I always uh, got the hint that Jane was looking out for Ricky and wanting to steer him away. But obviously they went to go end up killing the guy.
0: Yeah, it just seems to me like she's a little scummy, and she probably would do something like that, but maybe
1: not. I mean, she's she's been loyal to Teague the whole time, but we have seen her end up, I mean, it, 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 she's a very interesting character the way this has gone, and Cruel Summer has all been in a different view the whole time. So it's like each issue centers on someone else, and reading the back matter of the book, I believe the next issue is centering on Ricky's friend, um, the one with the glasses, who was the main character in the in the Bad Weekend arc. So, yep, it, it's uh, Brewmaker's playing with this different POV in every issue, and it's it's very fun seeing how connecting the pieces and seeing how this is all gonna fall into place.
2: Yeah, I don't have much to add. It's an amazing issue, amazing series. There's again like similar issues I pointed out, just funny isolated bits, the, uh, Ricky Jane. We saw this earlier, where like Jane, she's not really like that invested in Ricky, and Ricky's definitely not that invested in her. But she will like give him gifts or like make references. And at first he like rubs against it, but then he's like, "Yeah, hey, you're actually kind of cool." And so in this, we see that she gave him Joy Division records that he's really into. Yeah. And then I, and then I try and when I have the time, I try and read the back matter in these because. This is, like, one of the few comics where that matters. And um, Rubaker talks about how Kirkman spent extra money to get color pages in an issue of Walking Dead to advertise criminal, like, when it was very early on, which at the time was published by competitor Marvel. So I have no idea how that worked out. I'm assuming it only could have worked out because even though it was at Marvel under the icon imprint, it was – partially creator it was you know well pretty much it was creator-owned i doubt that could happen now even in a similar scenario but it doesn't really matter because marvel doesn't do anything remotely creator-owned anymore within the past several years rubaker calls *The walking dead the quote most successful indie comic book of all time which um it's impossible to verify because comic book sales numbers are entirely bullshit and everything like that But that's an interesting thing for me about because basically it's like The Walking Dead. Obviously, it didn't didn't launch to huge numbers. And then it was a slow build. And then for tons and tons and tons of issues, it was Image's best-selling book besides like Saga or something. And then obviously, it sold a shitload of trades. But how does that balance out with Spawn? which for the first like 50 issues sold like a bajillion copies.
1: You know how um, it balances I'm out with sure. Spawn?
2: I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if The Walking Dead has the crown. I,
1: I I think it's very believable for Walking Dead to have the crown when you take into account the the staying power that that brand had for so many years. And it still exists with the mass amounts of merchandise, clothes, toys. We're talking two TV shows with I keep hearing maybe a third from AMC, and then vi- the video games.
2: Yeah, but none, none of that matters. It matters oddly. Oddly, it matters more for Walking Dead than other comics.
1: Well, I know. I, I mean, we're not walking around with the Spawn TV sh- with two Spawn TV shows on. Yeah,
2: no, but I'm saying, but I'm saying the other media stuff. I mean, obviously, there are billion dollar Avengers movies, and that doesn't yeah. help the Avengers books that
1: no, but I think, no, but I would say no, it, it helped the Walking Dead book because I know people that aren't that much into comics yeah. but like the Walking Dead, and Walking Dead's the only comic they've ever read.
2: Yeah, and then also, Bruce Baker has a quick note about Darwin Cook and about how he and Phillips are helping editorially or creatively something on the um, a final belated deluxe reprint of uh, Darwin Cook's Parker graphic novels from idw um so that's interesting i hadn't heard of that
1: yeah i didn't know he was doing that um but it was a cool write-up um him and talking with jimmy Palmiotti um at new york comic-con where they had the realization they're going to be telling darwin stories forever Uh, was a really cool moment but yeah i didn't know him and phillips were overseeing that and uh i'm sure they'll both do a beautiful job with those collections all
2: right so dial age number seven the oakland page we get a bunch of superhero or comic book references, and then the rest of the book, there's no like, there's not as many clear references. So I'll just note them here. We have a lone wolf and cub type character, the like father figure dude, who has Usagi Yojimbo essentially on his back. Yeah. There's a there's like '90s Jean Grey slash image. I'm not, I'd say closest to '90s Jean Grey.
1: It's like Jean. It's like if Jean Grey mixed with Starfire.
2: We got tra- we got a transformer mech type dude, and then. Okay, and then a black and white character who, who I feel is closest to maybe like Adam Warren style um, of empowered fame. Um, but it could be, you know, any 80s black and white boom thing as, as well. So we open, this is kind of a bridge issue. We don't really have Miguel or, or I think her name Summer. Miguel or Summer really at all. This is really just showing like, hey, this is what Metropolis is like right now or for the moment with everyone being a superhero and we open with this like emotional interlude with about relationships and belonging of this like guy who's trying to work out and lose weight because of his um, boyfriend. And and then he catches a boyfriend sleeping with a superhero when he thinks he shows up as a superhero is going to impress him. It's uh, a, I thought that this little first snippet was really well done and then the second snippet was really cool, where it's essentially a specter story about the healthcare industry and health insurance. Yeah, and it's pretty awesome. And then there's, Lu- and then this one's weird. I'm not, I'm not really sure what this is amaging exactly, but there's Lucy Monster Hunter who goes to get revenge on her aunt. Who, I guess, maybe it's implied, like, her aunt killed her mother or something. Yeah, it it's, cool.
1: it's implied that her aunt killed her mom because they uh, there was an inheritance involved.
2: Yeah, but then, does she get killed by her aunt here, too? That,
1: that's the way I read it. Yeah. Um, it was, I will say it was unclear, because we do kind of just fade to black.
2: Yeah, she just, like, she shows up to her aunt, who's also not a superhero. She's, like, a humongous monster. And then she just kind of is like, "Eh, I don't care. Uh, And then it's Fade Black. But along the way, she punches essentially Blanca from Street Fighter in the face. (laughs) And then there's futuristic Detective Flamingo who wants to investigate how Guardian Angel is such a perfect superhero.
1: This is the best part of the issue.
2: Yeah, I love this. Guardian Angel is so perfect. She's always saving people. She never really says anything. She's just perfect and noble. And it turns out that Guardian Angel, when she gets depowered, is actually a service dog who is trained to dial a phone.
1: (laughs) It's a giant St. Bernard named Gretchen.
2: Yeah, I don't know how the mechanics of that work, but that's really fucking amazing. And then it ends with a tease of uh, Robbie Reed and Mr. Thunderbolt. I think it's the the secret origin of Mr. Thunderbolt or something. Yes. So next issue we'll get into the actual – you know, ongoing plot with Miguel and everything. I This is interesting as well because I think, uh, did you already talk about one of the twins number seven, I think? Yeah. Yeah. So all of these, th- these three series or so were extended to 12 issues instead of six. And so I figure that this issue, even though it's amazing, I, it does kind of feel like a bridge issue.
1: Yeah. Very Maybe much. Like, it feels like a bridge like, issue.
2: We don't really want to do a skip month. I don't. I don't recall whether there may have actually been a skip month. Uh,
1: I don't like think it. there's been. They've they've stayed on schedule.
2: Yeah. So it may have been sl- like slightly behind no- schedule as far as the notice that hey, we're going to go for another six. And so they're like, okay, while I think of the next plot, um, let's do this. And this was great. I, I think you could read this standalone, and it would also be a great taste tester for. The series as a whole, you don't get the characterization of Miguel, which is which I actually do enjoy and is a major part of the series for me. But this issue again flexes off Quinones' is like ridiculous range artistically, the, which is a major major part of the book.
1: The splash page in this, where Joe Quinones draws Super Miguel in the pose of the cover of Superman number one is amazing uh mean among all the other styles in the book it, it's the this book continually has the spirit that i want every dc book to have where it's not like this dark and gloomy it's like people miguel just wants to be a, a hero and do some good uh and he looks to superman as that embodiment and it's so satisfying and so much fun um really one of the best books dc's putting out right now i can't praise it more i do this every issue it comes out
2: Yeah, and it's hard to say because it's sort of a minor-ish book, but I would love to see, like, oversized pages of this um, when they eventually
0: do it, but we'll see. All right, that's Style Age. um, Always great. All right, so uh, moving on to Flash, Volume 5, number 79. I am still, I guess, the only person still reading this book. You've been the
1: only person reading this book for, like, three issues now.
0: Yeah, I think this is probably the time where I drop off. Um, it's just getting to the point now where I don't know what the fuck's happening. Um, so pretty much, what we have here is we open up to the last issue where a few of like Flash's friends are being held like captives, so that they weren't they wouldn't get involved with, you know, Flash's trip to go stop the Black Flash. Um, he didn't want to endanger them. So he comes back, you know, from the last issue, Psych was killed because he's an asshole. Uh, but he was killed by Black Flash, and, um, you know, they kind of do a report on him, kind of see what's going on with him and trying to figure out, like, what Black Flash did. Um, but before we get to that, though, we kind of pan over to this girl that is ice skating um, with this little girl. I forget what – I don't know what her name is, but she's basically recruited by all these – villains that have been showing up the last few issues—they're um, all led by Captain Cold. And um, is it Golden Glider? Uh, it might be. She has like a blonde ponytail. Probably.
1: I mean Probably. I mean, that, that sounds like Golden Glider.
0: I think it is her. So, um, but yeah. So they're looking at, you know, like trying to figure out what happened. And apparently, like him dying, made Flash stronger. If that makes any sense. Um, so pretty much like he's trying to figure out what's going on and as he's, you know, walking around trying to figure it out, Iris shows up and talks to him and it's like, you know, uh, we have to talk about Wally and he's like, I can't, I'm super busy right now. I have this whole Black Flash thing going on and just as they're about to, um, you know, kind of resolve what's going on, um, Hunter shows up. So... I don't know what that means to you guys, but he's pretty much just, like, a, another Flash, like, version that is, like, hunting him down, trying to kill him.
1: All right. And This is the part where we're going to stop you, and mm-hmm. Vince is going to explain who Hunter Zolomon is.
0: I mean, there's not, not much. He's just
2: – well, yeah, he's reverse
1: Flash. He's He's reverse Flash, but he's not the reverse Flash.
2: Yeah, he's supposed to be. He was Wally West's version of Reverse Flash, and he was like a friend of Wally, a coworker of Wally, who then got like injured and then became the Reverse Flash. And he's a little bit more. He's unhinged in a slightly different way from the original Reverse Flash.
1: He's also got like the black um, eyes. Yeah,
2: and um, I guess he's messing with Barry, and that's that's the next arc. I know that.
1: Also, so I it'll tie into all this rogue stuff. I mean, I flipped through this issue. But also, why does Hunter Zolomon get to wear a better Flash suit than Barry Allen?
0: Yeah, I was just thinking that too. I'm like, this, his doesn't have any lines or anything. It looks exactly like... No, it's shit. the way
1: the Flash suit should look, except the logo's changed. And his eyes are yeah. black. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this issue... I mean, just to wrap up here too, we have, um, you know, Kid Flash. What's his name?
1: Wallace, Wallace. West.
0: Oh, well, yeah, that's right. My bad.
1: They're both um, named Wally.
0: We have him and Amber fighting like these villains and that's pretty much where we get like Captain Cold and all his rogue gallery coming through to fight um to fight, I guess, Kid Flash. I mean I I don't know. There's it's just this story just feels really like it's getting pulled in two different directions. I mean, for the last few issues, this whole storyline was about Black Flash and now with all the stuff that's going on with the villains, I mean it seems like it's being pulled into this direction. I don't know if they're related. I mean, I'm I'm not really interested in this, this storyline anymore. I feel like it's been taking too long to kind of get going. But, um, yeah, I just feel like there's, I just don't have enough knowledge about what's going on to really enjoy it. So I'm probably going to jump off at this point. But, yeah. I mean, the art looks good, if that's anything.
2: Yeah, I might try next issue. I, I just, like, this arc with the Force... The forces stuff didn't interest me. Moving into some rogues and uh, Zoom, I might try out the next issue, but I don't expect to necessarily stay on. I mean, we were all very excited about year uh, year one. And yeah, because he was in the
1: to... because the Flash was in his normal costume.
2: Yeah, well, well sort of for, not really for one issue. Yeah, but but then it went back to the ongoing. 80 issues running subplots of, of this and tied into the Force force Wall and the hidden forces and all that stuff, and I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> but that's Flash. I mean, I'm sure if, if you're keeping up with it and you're fine with the, stat, the status quo stuff, I think it's probably a pretty great book, but it's not really solid.
1: There's nothing from Joshua Williamson's characterization that has shown me that he's a bad writer on The Flash at all. Yeah.
2: All right, our next book is... S-F-S-X, Safe Sex, which for some reason those four letters in a row are difficult for me to say. I feel like this book should just be called Safe Sex. I'm sure there's some kind of like reason for this weird double title and abbreviation thing. I don't like it. I think it makes the book a little bit more confusing to look up and to remember and say its name and find. Um, You could have cut it down. So the writer here is Tina Horn, who I think is like a prose writer, activist, so-and-so, that kind of person. Art by Mike Dowling, who I've liked on previous stuff. And this is the second Vertigo exile after Mark Russell's second coming about Jesus hanging out with Superman, quote-unquote Superman. And that book ended up at Ahoy, very odd, uh, you know, kind of events. And this book at Image, where you'd actually expect a Vertigo Exile to go. And the narration open, first of all, the credits page has an ACDC quote on it, which is kind of weird. And then we open with the line, have you ever gotten off really hard in a room full of people? (laughs) And we're in a giant sex club in San Francisco, and there's like BDSM stuff going on, and just everyone's naked, and whatever, there's some stuff going on. And then it gets raided by religious zealots. And George and Avery, uh, Avery, uh, a woman, escape and settle into life, into like normie life. And it's this weird status quo where there's this like religious fundamentalist, uh, they refer to them as right wing, but the politics in here, it's, it's very back and forth they're in charge of society now and there's like sex audits every time. I don't know if it's every time you have an orgasm or every time you have sex, you have to file paperwork with like the pleasure center and the script drops and dialogue within it and everything drops the word feminism a bunch, but you know, it's a, it's a certain, you know, per, per version and perspective on it and stuff like that. And in this world as i said with the with the whole auditing and, and, and paperwork it regulates pleasure and es- especially there's like something about regulating male pleasure like they never come like they don't they don't say it explicitly but it's like implied like hey masturbation especially for by males not a thing don't do it and avery goes to a job interview she has criticized for her, her lipstick which is like the most like completely non-noticeable, boring lipstick in the first place. And the interviewer tells her, we prefer femininity that doesn't call attention to itself. And so Avery here, she used to be a sex worker of some kind. Um, It's not clear, you know, in in one arena. And her husband, who has more quickly than her, settled into kind of like a cover-up day job as a normie, essentially, he sees something behind doors that we don't see and he's, she's told that he's arrested. And so then they start coming after her and she goes on the run. And this is, this was actually the, the interesting, most interesting part of the issue to me, where she goes through, she's like, Hey, as a sex worker, again, whatever specifically that means to her, she has certain skills that you wouldn't expect. And we see these skills in action as she runs from these like Gestapo type dudes. So she's got core strength, which allows her to jump over stuff and everything. She got online marketing skills. She's got people skills. She can perform under pressure. She can escape bondage because she gets uh, handcuffed for a second. And she has a talent for strong smells when she hides in a dumpster until they leave. And then in the end issue, she like finds the other refugee sex workers in a cave. And it's, like, this big splash page. And I don't know if I'm supposed to know, like, some significance of this. Maybe if I was, like, more familiar with San Francisco or Bay Area native. I don't know. If, I don't know. Did she somehow get across water and they're, like, hanging out in Alcatraz? I have no clue. I think I'm going to keep reading this just because it's, like, really strange and racy. And there's some, there's some interesting ideas here. But I don't think the world building and the philosophies at play are quite there. I don't think it's developed further and far enough with at least in this issue um i don't have a great grasp of how everything fits together but it's strange and and there's like there how there are, you see a, you see penises in this issue and another thing but it's
1: oh really that. i i didn't i didn't know you were reading another smut book
2: no but it's it's not really gratuitous and uh I mean, when I say you see a penis, it's like three lines. Um, It's not, you know, it's not like some photorealism thing. Um, This book actually like way less racy than you might expect based on the title and premise. Yeah, I
1: I flipped through it. This this is not faithless.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's more it's it's less less racy than that. But we'll see. We'll see in future issues. And yeah, and again, I, I think I'll read the second issue at least. See if they uh, delve deeper. No pun intended. Um, okay, so into the X-Men corner. Powers of X, number five. We've only got this is the third to last issue of the Hox Pox Saga before we get into the actual relaunch. So in year one, Charles has Fords build the new and improved Cerebro, which like registers mutant thingy jigs, like their their essences at as backups which allows him to resurrect them with the, the the five people so it's not quite a traditional retcon it's just folded into the the existing retcons in this series with Mara's 10 lives so i was happy to see that even though i still have some hesitancy over with the overall retcons and then we see the recruitment of emma frost for um krakoa And she's obviously apprehensive due to her history with Genosha. That's the beginning of Graham Morrison's run. The most cataclysmic event permutely, way more so. We saw the numbers in a previous issue, but more so than House of M, or the decimation, I should say. And that's when her secondary mutation was unlocked and everything like that. And they want her, initially, they want her as like a politician, lobbyist type character. And that's what we've already seen where she um, helped bail out Sabertooth, and then she helped with the UN vote. But they also want her, like a, the distributor of the miracle drugs via the Hellfire Club, and she compares it to the East India con- uh, Company. And I think this will tie into the Marauders book, which they're describing as like a pirate X-Men series. Um, and, and then her motivation is she's doing it, for the children or whatever and that's always been a thing with emma frost people forget like she's really like the the like most important teacher after xavier because like none they get put in teacher roles but none of the core x-men from like the original the silver age or from giant size none of them ever like fully embraced like the teacher role they obviously they they've had mentor relationships with with younger X-Men on the battlefield and stuff like that. And in certain books like Wolverine, the X-Men, et cetera, Is it
1: like Jean who's like the only one from the original five?
2: I mean, I don't even know about her.
1: Yeah, Emma, it would be like maybe new X-Men era for like five yeah. minutes because then she dies.
2: But Emma has Emma has always had that angle. I mean, back to her, her first few appearances and everything, she was a rival teacher. She had her rival school with the Hellions – and everything like that, and that continued through her perspective while she was a major character in the books, with in a relationship with Scott. That was kind of her, part of her angle. Obviously, she taught Generation X for a long time, and then the new the Academy X t- team and things like that. Um, and they are going to give her two out of twelve seats on the Krakowin Council which it's kind of 14, Cypher and Krakoa itself are on there, but they don't count as part of the official, official council. And the second seat is because they want her to bring Shaw back in to essentially be the bad cop of the Hellfire Club. And they do reference, no footnote though, that she literally just got rid of Shaw, and that was in the X-Men Black Emma Frost one-shot by Leo Williams and Chris Pacello, um, which I enjoyed that issue, so it was nice to acknowledge it. And she demands a third and she gets to it, but we don't know the specifics of that in this issue. And so the breakdown is there are four groups of three and they're named after seasons. And so Magneto and Professor X are together. We don't know who their third is. And then Emma and Shaw are together. We don't know who the third she picked is. And then we don't know the other two groups. One of them, since there's seasons, one of them is called summer. So I don't know. Um, And then uh, another major thing worth noting here is that there's a Namor page because Charles kind of projects himself to all the major mutants. And this is kind of a flashback. It takes place before all the villains showed up at the end of last issue. Hey, come chill. We've set this thing up. And Namor's like, hey, uh, I already know him better. And I I don't know. I think there's a really great panel and and lines here for Namor, but – I don't, think go, I don't think it's as satisfactory as I would have liked because, obviously, okay, Namor's invited to Krakoa, but he's also the leader of an entirely separate existing nation, which is possibly larger than uh, Krakoa. And so he kind of has split duties, and they don't fully acknowledge that here. And then there's the huge elephant in the room, continuity-wise, of the whole invaders backstory that we now know. And that brings up a question of, you know, when does the House of X take place in relation to invaders. You know, does Namor know this this Charles Xavier backstory that he's discovered and how does he feel about that? Who knows? It's not acknowledged here. I didn't necessarily expect it to because that would take up a lot of space, but I'm hoping the X-Men books at some point acknowledge that. And then there's some there's like multiple pages of some thousand year thousand year later stuff with technarchy and shit and I I don't care about that. Mike, what did you do you have
1: further thoughts? Uh, the last two issues this have been really, really good. Um, this is really, really good. I knew you were going to enjoy it because uh, I texted you and I was like, yo, this this issue has a lot of Emma in it, so I know you're going to like it. Um, all the Emma parts are really good. I'm interested to, interested to see what the whole council is going to be. I'm fully with you. When we get into the far future stuff with Nimrod, I don't really care. Um, I'm not as interested in much as that. But um, the backups of the crystals and, like, the codexes for people um, – and their essences I thought was all interesting and this still continues to be very an interesting and perplexing series uh, that's some really really strong comics right now
2: the other thing is um, this is just a quick comment the way that Forge was drawn as well as the, the coloring um, I don't remember off the top of my head but I feel like you could I feel like the colorist could have gone just slightly deeper with his skin tone the darker I should say and and then I feel like he's Maybe just slightly too large, too chunky, because this depiction of Forge, if you color swapped his bandana to red, you could 100% mistake him for Corsair, and add a mustache. They, if you if you think about it, Forge and Corsair, if you draw them a certain way, they look pretty similar.
1: Yeah, except one um, of them has so a, a the giant part. robot leg.
2: Yeah, but I don't, I don't think I don't think you see that for the first few panels and stuff. But no, so, you honestly, don't. the first panel. The first panel I saw do with uh, the bandana, and for, and especially because you know they don't use Forge super prominently for decade for like a decade now, um, with rare exceptions. Honestly, for the first panel, I'm like, oh, he's talking to Corsair. Especially since this scene was in year year zero, so he's meeting up with Forge before like the only all different team exists. I believe this is Silver Age time. Um, all right. So, obviously, it's it's based on him knowing all the previous lives, so he knows where all the mutants are that eventually join the X-Men and what their connections
1: are. And, um, uh, I mean, I looked, looked right. at this and I went, wow, that was Forge. So,
2: there you well, go. All right, last issue of the week, another X-Men book, another anniversary special, New Mutants, War Children. This is Kermont and Stumkevich, who worked together on the original New Mutants run with from issues 18 to 31 and 35 to 38. They did the Demon Bear Saga, they did um, the, the Slumber Party and uh, some Warlock stuff and, and the, the Legion, the introduction of the Legion, and all kinds of stuff. And that was 84 to 86. And they did another reunion on the characters for X-Men Unlimited 43 in 2003. Uh, I don't, don't want to say an iconic cover, but an amazing sinkavage cover. And the story here, I'm going to be honest... It's kind of jagged. I don't know entirely 100% what's going on, but Warlock is having a bad day and goes a little nuts. And I guess he's just like over and like he's like overly anxious about kind of like his background species as a species and everything like that and his proposed, his supposed destiny and everything like that. So instead of eventually getting to the point where he murders everyone, he like runs away and then ends up fighting them anyway, but then it takes everyone else goes after him, and the entire team. Which at this point, Kitty is also in this issue um, with Lockheed, and then it like takes a weird right turn where magic, like the demonic version of magic, uh, the um, the hell the hell child, I forget what it's called. Basically, gets awakened, and then they they end up like they fix Warlock, and then they have to shift to fighting Ma- the evil turned magic, and then it ends up with magic fighting herself, and then it kind of ends. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, this book uh, it's not very crystal, it's not very crystal clear, um, but it was entertaining at least on a certain level to see Bill and drawing the new mutants and. Claremont gets a few interesting things in, in here. And the very interesting thing uh, is that I guess they're, ele- you know, they're giving Claremont the comps to read House of X because this has to be meta. This has to be a reference. Because there's a moment where Cypher, who's still alive at this point, um before he dies, he they're like trying to find Warlock and Cypher is just, like, looking at literally tracks on the ground. But he he's, like, near some weeds or whatever, and someone is like, you can communicate with plants now? And Cypher's like, I've never tried to get around to that. Um, and I feel like that's got to be a reference to Krakoa and that type of stuff, which would be very interesting. I think that's it. But that's New Numenus' War Children. It's kind of a mixed bag, but just for the... I don't know, the nostalgia factor and stuff. It's uh, worth a look. So that's the show this week. And I've done this once or twice before. I'm going to, for next retro book, I'm going to turn it to the co-host. So we're going to do a vote. You have two options. Bloodshot number one. These are indie books from February 1993. So we've got Bloodshot number one by Kevin Van Hook and Don Perlin. Or... Sonic the Hedgehog number zero, the first ever Sonic comic book in the long, long running, just barely like a year ago finished continuity of Sonic, written by Michael Gallagher and drawn by Scott Shaw.
1: All right. Well, I think it's an easy decision and I speak for Dan. Um, Everything involving Sonic is an abomination and should be destroyed. So, Bloodshot number one, please.
2: I'm curious if Dan does concur because I said Michael Gallagher, who wrote some Guardians, of the, some terrible Guardians of the Galaxy.
0: I, that's that's what piqued my interest on that. So I will go Sonic. Then I will <laughs> I will be the deciding
2: factor, and all I have to ask is what company published Bloodshot? Valiant. Bloodshot, it is. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> we will see you next week. Thanks for watching this episode. Watch previous ones. Watch next ones. Have a good night.
1: Hi, it's Mike again. So that's our show for this week, and thanks for listening again. Remember, you can catch the show's live version always live on YouTube. Also there, you can catch No Man's Podcast, our podcast all about Batman's No Land, No Man's Land and the storyline. Our next episode will be Cassandra Cain's first appearance, and we've been looking forward to that for a very long time, so we're very excited to get to that. As a tease for the next week, we have Deceased and Batman from DC's Output. And from Marvel, we have got Ghost Rider number one and a double dose of Immortal Hulk with Immortal Hulk issue 24 and Absolute Carnage one-shot. NG scene, we have a slew of brand new number ones that Vince is going to check out. So we'll see you next week. I'm out of here. Have a tremendous evening.